Welcome to P3 Radio. The monkey only dances as good as the guy grinding the organ handle. Give a lesson. We're coming for you, baby. <laughs> and if you're going to call me back tomorrow, whatever I do. You better believe I took my turn a little bit. <laughs> what? Cool story, bro. PG3 Radio. Here's your host, Josh Friend. Ladies and gentlemen, next up we have crying little blind children. Richard Mulliken. I don't know. Is this making any sense to anybody out there? It's showtime! It's showtime! It's showtime! Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to another episode of P3 Radio. I'm Richard Mulliken, joined by my co-host and best friend, Josh Briley. Say hey, Josh. How's it going, everybody? Today we have the first Olympic edition of P3 Radio. Not only that, the first female guest for our podcast. Two-time Olympic gold medalist Summer Sanders. Yeah, somebody with her credentials should not have been as nice, down-to-earth, and just as awesome as she was to an upstart podcast like us. We really appreciate her time and her being on our show. And we will have that interview and more after a word from Wine of the Month Club. When you go shopping for wine, do you look at the labels? Do you stare at the price and wonder if the wine is worth the expensive tag? Well, stop it, because Wine of the Month Club has you covered. Every month, Wine of the Month Club is going to send you two bottles of high-quality wine right to your front door. And what better way to say I'm thinking of you than a subscription to the original Wine of the Month Club for a friend or a sweetheart. Each month, they'll be reminded of your thoughtfulness and will receive the monthly wine letter and newsletter binder. Recipes, wine knowledge, and great wine, and the opportunity to get more of their favorites is at hand. Give with confidence and joy knowing that you're a part of the original Wine of the Month. By the way, there are no dues, no fees, no hidden charges. Cancel any time with no obligation. Just pay no more than $23.96 plus shipping for two great bottles of wine. Go there now. Sign up by visiting our link tinyurl.com slash p3wine. That's tinyurl.com slash p3wine. The Wine of the Month Club. The original wine club since 19. 19- 72. Ladies and gentlemen, joining us right now on the P3 Hotline, you've seen her as an athlete, as a sports analyst, a commentator, a game show host, a two-time gold medalist. We are honored to have the multi-talented Summer Sanders right here. Summer, thanks for joining us today. Oh, it is my pleasure. You forgot to add um, the victim of slime, which is a big (laughs) part of my life. You know, being slimed is a... I don't know. I put it at like my number two on my resume. <laughs> we've actually gonna, we're going to ask you about that here in a little bit. D- don't worry, we've yeah. got that covered. <laughs> <laughs> I figured. But you know, I was watching a YouTube video in preparation for this. You know, I always try to find questions that you probably haven't been asked before, which is impossible. But I, I stumbled across this YouTube video of these guys that were following you around, asking you questions TMZ style. And all I could oh, think yeah. of was, guys, just leave her alone. She's trying to get to where she's going. And then I thought. Oh, God, I've been doing this tour on Twitter for, like, the past two months. <laughs> you know what's funny about that? So um, that instance was, like, kind of a one-time deal. I mean, if you think back to my career, 
um, the, the oddest part of being uh, that moment in the Olympic Games is that you come home and it's and and people know your name. And so I remember walking on the streets of it was in D.C. for some reason, and um, somebody hollered my name, and I figured, oh, I must know them. But how weird because. It's 1992. We, no one has cell phones. Internet's right. not invented. And here's this person hollering my name in D.C. I don't know anybody in D.C. So that was an odd moment. Um, but you fast forward to uh, now and how everybody can kind of get in your space, which is totally fine. But that TMZ moment never had happened to me before. And the ironic part of it was I was going to L.A. to do a prank show. A Chris, It's called Chris <laughs> Weber's. I forget the name of the show, but it was Chris Weber, basketball player, yeah. and uh, and it was a prank show. So I was pranking someone, and I got off that plane, and I thought, oh, my God, they're pranking me. <laughs> so I, the whole time, I'm like, am I in the twilight zone? What is happening right, right. now? <laughs> um, yeah, but you are not. That's I think it's a cool part of social media, um, and I, you know, I – I felt like we were going to have like a good conversation, and I'm like, yeah, let's do this. It does connect people in a very cool way. Well, we appreciate it, and like I said, it really speaks to how nice of a person you are that you let me bug you on a month for Twitter to try to get you on this little <laughs> unknown podcast that hopefully one day will be something, and we can go, Summer Sanders helped us out so much in the beginning. <laughs> oh, you're so sweet. Well, I hope so. Looking back, what would you say are some of the things that you can pinpoint that molded you into such a successful athlete? You know, it's funny. Um, I was a couple minutes late calling you guys because I was on the phone with my mom. Um, and we were having a conversation about me when I was around 8, 9, 10 years old because my son is swimming and he's 10. And the other day, Monday to be specific, uh, he didn't want to go to swim practice. And I said, well, buddy, you should probably go because you have state championships on Thursday and you're also skiing. So you're going to be skiing on Wednesday. So you really only have a couple chances for swim practice before state championships. Right. But it was very important to my son at that moment to have a play date with a friend because he hadn't played with his friends in a while. And that trumped swim practice. So I stepped back and said, okay, I just I wanted to lay the cards out there and let you know what your week looks like. Um, so if that's what you want to do, I can't make you, I can't force you. And so my mom and I just had this conversation and she said, well, remember you quit swimming when you were 10. Wow. And, um, but then she also reminded me when I decided to go to practice, I went every single day. I, there was just no question. So I think it stems from like this. My parents were really awesome. They're still really awesome. My dad didn't know anything about swimming. He just knew it took a ton of time which he didn't like. And my mom really recognized my talent, but stood back and cleverly let me make my own decisions daily. So if I decided not to go to practice, then that was on me. And she would ask me all these really clever questions when I didn't want to go, but it really instilled in me the sense of responsibility um, with my own journey. And I think that was really important. And that's a huge part of why I was so connected to the process of being great. I was an active member of that. You mentioned your dad, you know, not liking the time. You know, as a father of a dance child, I'm a dance dad. Um, uh -huh. I have a five-year-old that's in ballet and tap. And every year it seems like the training, the, the classes get like five to 10 to 15 minutes longer. And you're like, please, just, just stick with dancing. Don't choose softball or something else. I mean, it's cool if you do, but, you know, it's like, 
daddy only has a little bit of time in the day. <laughs> so I can yeah. I can feel for him there. But she started at five dancing, and you mentioned uh, quitting swimming at 10. What age did you really start trying and training to be an Olympic athlete? Oh, I, you know what? That is a question that I get a lot, and it, and it becomes more interesting uh, even now because I have kids that are 11 and 10. So I probably recognized that I had natural talent um, probably around 11 years old. I was qualifying for pretty big meets at that time. I had I had a, a bit of confidence. I saw the results of going to practice and working hard and then going to a swim meet and swimming fast. That was just a direct result, one of the other. When I when I probably learned that I could be great and make the Olympics and win a gold medal was when I just missed the Olympic team when I was 15. And it was an accident that I even made it into finals. So that whole process was like, that wasn't even supposed to happen. Um, and it was probably the greatest gift. Uh, and I, I do hope maybe people listening recognize that some of your biggest failures, quote unquote, right. um, in your mind are oftentimes your greatest gifts and a gift in terms of learning and becoming better. And they happen for a reason often. So that was one of my greatest gifts was just missing the Olympic team. I feel like if I had made it, I wouldn't really know what my goal was there. And I maybe I wouldn't have had the fire to come back for four more years and work every single day so hard to with my eyes set on not just making the team but winning a gold medal. And missing it is exactly what that produced was that fire. So um, that's probably when I knew I could make it and I knew I could win was when I was 15 if I worked hard. Yeah, that's kind of like the Michael Jordan getting cut from his high school basketball thing. Um, it's also like every coach you ever have in football growing up where they go, all right, so we don't want to peak too early. We don't want to win too many games in a row and get your confidence here to where you think you can't be beat. We want you to right. lose one early if you have to. Get it out of the way and let's just move on. You want that failure in life. Now, speaking yeah. of football, uh, to segue into this, we, we kind of had a little Twitter conversation about the Super Bowl. And I think we were both pulling for the same team, maybe because your divisional rival was the opponent of the uh, of the. Maybe yeah. you think so? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, you know, in a lot of these Super Bowl winning interviews with the coaches, they'll have with a coach on stage, and they'll say, "Hey, what do you what do you want to do? What do you what are you going to do now that you've won?" And they go, uh, "We got to start focusing on next year." You know, it's very you know straightforward, eagle vision, mm -hmm. looking towards the next year. When you win that Olympic gold medal, and you're standing there on top of the world. Do you take a second to go, wow, I did it? Or do you just start the competitor and you just start looking forward to the next challenge? No, I, so listen, I was 19 when I was standing on top of that podium. So four years after missing it as a 15-year-old, I then am standing on top of the podium with a 19-year-old brain. It's very difficult to be that young and comprehend what's happening, right? I mean, right. if I look at myself, I, I run marathons now. And I cry at the start of my marathon, and I cry when I'm like a half a mile to the finish all the way through because I recognize every single hour of training is like time away from my kids. My family is a part of my journey. When you're that young, you cross the finish line, and yeah, you think, okay, what's next? Um, that was awesome. What's next? But I think so my moment when I was 19 was a lot of pressure. I won my individual gold medal at my very last race, which was on the last day of swimming competition after a very long week of emotion, nervousness, excitement, all this. So when I touched the wall and I saw that I had a one next to my name, my first emotion was relief. <laughs> um, 
And then my 19-year-old brain said, oh, remember you gave up sweets for the entire three weeks leading up to these uh, Olympic Games, so now you finally get to eat sugar. So, <laughs> And my friends had chocolate in the stands, so I'm not kidding you. My gold medal moment was amazing, and I was watching my flag being raised, and my hand was over my heart, and I didn't have the guts to belt out the anthem, but I was emotionally singing along with every verse. But then when I got off the podium, I knew my friends were going to throw me chocolate, and they did. And so it's kind of cool because I was so young that it kept it very real. You know, the moment was uh, was amazing, but my friends and that connection kept it very grounded. Um, it was about food for me. I went straight to Dick Ebersol's office because I had to do an interview. I got to do an interview with Bob Costas, and all I wanted was a giant cheeseburger. So it was cheeseburger, fries, chocolate. And I literally didn't starve myself before the Olympics. But, yeah, I I soaked it up, and I enjoyed every moment. And then when I came back from the Olympic Games, that's when I considered, okay, what am I going to do with swimming after this? Right. So I waited for a second. And I and you know what, you guys, I think they do. They appreciate it. They enjoy it. I think it's um, – it's a, a bit of a um, it's a safety net, so to speak, for these coaches and athletes to just focus on next year. But I do think people are becoming more real with their conversation. I think right. social media has helped that way, where they authentically tell you, I'm going to enjoy this moment. I'm going to soak this up. I'm going to soak it up with this person right here, this person. You know, right. um, I think they're becoming more open with that. Well, you know, you kind of touched on it a little bit there with the national anthem. I don't know what it is. You go to a sporting event and you have the right person singing the national anthem and you have, say, a football game and those jets come flying over you. Oh. Is there a song that can drag so much emotion out of you? Uh, am I the only one that kind of tears up a little bit at the national anthem? Especially, no, yeah. maybe you and I are the only ones, but I <laughs> and my husband, too. We start, we'll look at each other on July 4th and when those jets fly over, I mean, I have tears rolling down my face like my I'm biting my lip and my chin is quivering it's like full you know dramatic cry moment um no I you know I had an Olympian um I was talking to uh, this person I can't remember who it was but they described it best in in winning a gold medal and standing on that podium you really never ever hear the national anthem the same way again and it's in a great way I mean, I ran Boston Marathon in 2013. Every time those moments happened where an entire stadium full of people sang the national anthem um, and it brought people together, I was bawling. Yeah. It has a lot of meaning to me, that moment. Um, so, yeah, I'm not, you're not alone. I'm right there with you. <laughs> well, good. I'm glad to hear that. Well, coming <laughs> back from the Olympics, you were on posters everywhere growing up. <laughs> Who were on the posters hanging in your room? Okay, so few, a few people know this about me. I've said it a couple times, but I was obsessed with Michael Jordan. So and when I say obsessed, I traveled with these posters to my swimmates, and I would put these posters up on the wall with toothpaste because toothpaste does not affect the paint or the wallpaper. Yeah. Um, I never thought I of would. <laughs> There you go. That's a little nugget of knowledge that you can take away from this <laughs> podcast. Um, I would write number 23 on my swim cap. I would parade out for every race in my Air Jordans. So I I loved Michael Jordan. I loved his play. I loved how talented he was. 
Um, and I know I'm not alone. This generation right. of mine, right? We just we would yeah. watch him and we could feel like we could go and do anything. So that was that time period when I was younger. It, I mean, and I went to the L.A. Olympics as a spectator, of course. Um, Mary Lou Retton. I, I mean, I, I oh, could yeah. barely point my toes, but Mary Lou Retton. I thought I'm going to put my swimsuit on and run down the hallway of my house and do a round off, and I'm going to be Mary Lou Retton. <laughs> so, um, and my, you know, my brother and I would play Eric Hyden. We put socks on on our wood floor. And we pretend like we were speed skaters and we play Eric Hyden. So, I mean, I had a lot of heroes growing up. Most all of them, you know, when I was really young, they were Olympians. But um, that teenage to into, into college year was Michael Jordan. Yeah, you know, we don't do political questions here. Uh, I guess this is going to be the closest thing that we would have. So a couple of years ago, I had heard about this procedure that you guys have when you win an Olympic gold medal or a silver or bronze when you come back to the U.S. you're hit with a tax now depending on what you know you look up on Google there's a bunch of different figures there I won't get into specifics on how much per medal but I thought that was crazy that they tax you guys on winning medals for representing our country really I mean you're representing us and then they charge you for it what, what do you think about that tax procedure on the medals so you have to understand, this is new. Um, and I think it's really cool that we're having this conversation because then the general public will understand how really not that long ago, it, it, I mean, I know you could be professional and be in the Olympic Games, but the Olympic Games was not about money. So in 1992, I brought home two gold medals, a silver and a bronze. And the USOC, not my national governing body of USA Swimming, but the USOC sent me a check for $1,250, wow. and that was it. <laughs> so so I don't believe I was taxed on that, um, uh, and I could have been. I really don't know. Um, so I was 19, and my dad was helping with my taxes and all that stuff. Right. But, uh, um, but yeah, I, at that time, it really wasn't about money. Uh, of course, I was 19, and I'm like, sweet, I have 1250 bucks. <laughs> right. Um, but that was for anyone who was in the finals. If you were first, so gold medal to eighth place, in any race, you got one check for $1,250. So if you did it four times, you still just got 1250 bucks. You, you fast forward four years, and then athletes started getting paid. So I believe they got paid 50000 for gold and then on down to, wow. you know, silver and bronze from the USOC and a similar amount from their national governing body. So that would be USA Swimming. Um, I felt like it was great. You know, I, I do feel like it's really only the top tier of Olympians that can bring home uh, – an income to support themselves and many are now supporting a family. Um, they're trying to be the best in the world and they're trying to earn enough money to support a family. Many of these amazing winter Olympians came straight home and went back to their day job. I mean, I can't tell you, we, we did a house here in park city and we had uh, a gold medalist who was doing our cabinets. We had a silver medalist who was redoing our floors. Um, we were hiring these, you know, handy skilled workers um, and they are Olympic medalists wow. and that's what they do to earn enough money to do what they love to do to represent our country and that still is what we love you know about the Olympic Games that, that there is a part of it that is hard and pure but 
you're right. It, we, we have to figure this out a little bit better because right. they shouldn't be suffering. No. And if we are going to give them money, do we tax them? That becomes really complicated. I personally don't think so. Um, But I don't know enough about our taxation situation uh, or about the payment situation um, right now. So I do find it interesting, and I'm glad that athletes are being paid for their medals. In the patriot in me, the the USA patriot, you know, red, white, and blue blood, if you're wearing an American flag and you're representing us in anything, you should get a break. You know, there should be (laughs) certain things that they just let you have. You know, you won a gold medal, come back over here, be a hero. You fought in a war, come back over here, you're never going to be homeless. But like I said, we don't do political questions, so we'll get off of that right now. Yeah. Well, you know what? Here's the deal. I'm not alone with you. I But but, uh, Olympians and I think service... We, I don't know, I keep for people who serve our country. My dad right. got into the military because um, that's what he did. You know, right. it wasn't, it was sort of a decision. It was a way to get it, to get to college. It was a way to get an education. Um, but that's what that generation did. I swam because I loved it. I didn't right. swim for money. And, and it became very complicated when money became a part of my swimming career. So I'm right there with you. Um, but I, I do feel like at least this, I'll tell you this story. Okay. I, I was trying to order the hat, the gloves, and the scarf for Team USA because um, I was going to an actual Team USA event in Park City right before opening ceremony. And I went on the USA website, the Team USA website, and I, and I put it all in. And the person who had asked me to go to the event, I texted him and I said, hey, do you guys have a promo code or like a coupon for Olympians when we order Team USA stuff? And so he said, let me check. And then he, he texted me back and he said, you know, we've been working on that and we just don't have that yet. <laughs> so um, we get like, we can't even just catch a break in ordering Team USA stuff. But I, like, you know, I'm not, I can't be upset about it. I just right. love representing our country so much. And I love the red, white, and blue. And I, and I look at my gold medals and I'm so honored to be a part of that family. Well, since you're such a high-level swimmer, did it ever cross your mind to become like a Navy SEAL? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Are you kidding? That is actually – okay. So uh, I do feel like that I'm very tough, and in the moment uh, and under pressure, I do feel like I calm a little bit. But I am such a wimp. I am such a wimp, especially when it comes to the ocean. Right. So, um, oh, and that and that is so funny because we do have there are quite a few people who grew up as swimmers that will go into the Navy SEALs, but it's a special, rare, amazing quality to, um, yeah, to make it through Navy SEAL training, uh, not only survive the training but then thrive as a Navy SEAL. So my hat goes off to them. No chance. I'll leave that (laughs) to the professionals. (laughs) You know, I was talking to my wife a couple, a couple years back and I said, I think not knowing how to swim is the closest thing that you can have an intervention for, for a skill. Uh, Because I I can't swim. And usually when you tell somebody that the first, the first thought is that's crazy. And then I'm going to teach you. It's never, it's never like, you should really learn how and find classes on your own. It's like, no, we're going to go out one day. I'm just going to throw you in the river and you'll be fine. You'll, you'll swim. Trust me. Can I interrupt you really yeah, quickly? Go ahead. What do you, what do you mean by you can't swim? I, I, we grew up in a very landlocked type area. There was the river that was like a, uh-huh. like an hour away in Memphis. But other than that, 
having an overprotective mother, I was an only child uh, raised by a mm -hmm. single mother. She was very cautious about what I did, and she was scared to death of water. So I never uh -huh. really went swimming. I guess the other thing I could point out is I was always the chubby kid, so I never wanted to take my shirt off and do all that, so I just avoided pools. Well, but I mean, if you went in the water right now, would you sink to the bottom? I'd drown, yeah. Totally. You would drown. <laughs> totally. All right, well, well, here's the deal. I mean, the biggest thing to overcome for adults who can't swim, there's a difference between I'm scared to death of swimming and I can't swim. So the scared to death is the more difficult, right? Because they've mm -hmm. had some sort of a traumatic experience with the water and emotionally being, being able to overcome that is totally separate from the skill of swimming. But if you look at swimming and you imagine your body, um, you have two built-in life preservers and they are your lungs. So when you fill your lungs with air, they, their purpose is to keep you afloat. Right. right. What happens when you get nervous in the water is you blow all your air out. So in swimming, you can never really go <sighs> like there's no deep breath. There's right. just really shallow breathing that goes on so that your lungs really do stay, you know, partially uh, inflated so that you have a little flotation going on. So if you just take that, that right there is going to help yeah. you stay afloat. Yeah. And um, so anyway, yeah. People, because people care about you probably, and they really have a desire to um, to experience this joy of swimming and everything aquatic with you. So you should take it as a compliment that well, so many people want to teach you how to swim. I joked with my wife. We went to on a cruise to Mexico a couple years back, and she somehow talked me into going. Um, what is it? Where you look all the fish? Uh, scoop, not scuba snorkeling. diving, but snorkeling. Yes, snorkeling. And uh -huh. I joked with her because they gave me this life vest that was inflatable. And they kept uh -huh. draining all the air out, and I'm blowing it up, and they're draining it out. And I'm like, do you have a life insurance policy on me? <laughs> and these guys at this resort in Mexico are in on it because I'm going to drown out here looking at these beautiful fish. They're very beautiful, <laughs> but I'm going to die looking at them. Um, right. We always bring it back to wrestling. I wrestled for 12 years on the Memphis circuit. Josh's uncle was okay. a wrestler. We always bring it back to wrestling in a way, some way. Don't worry, we're not going to ask you who was your favorite uh, Hulk Hogan opponent or anything like that. But... In wrestling, we always did things uh, to where we'd have to entertain ourselves, uh, whether it was mm -hmm. you know playing practical jokes or pranks on each other. Was any of that going on in the Olympics? Did anybody try to do like pranks or practical jokes to kind of lighten the mood, or was it more of a serious atmosphere? No, always pranks. Oh, my God. In <laughs> fact, one of the best pranks was my, uh, my roommate, the one I always roomed with, her name is Nic Nicole Hazlett, and she had this just uber obsession crush on Arnold Schwarzenegger. So at the Olympic Games in Barcelona, um, our Olympic Village where we were staying, it wasn't really 100% complete. Right. Um, so our, for instance, our door, we could never really lock or shut our door completely. <laughs> our bathroom wasn't completely finished. We had no air conditioning. And if you've ever been to Europe in the summertime, it's hot. So it was like ridiculously hot. Um, so we had these curtains. Um, and then basically it was almost like jail cell uh, um, metal bars that just literally made up the whole side of our room. It's really odd, actually. Um, so one of our teammates knew that, that Nicole was obsessed with Arnold. And Arnold happened to be at the Olympic Games, and she happened to be friends with Arnold Schwarzenegger. So we were asleep when this was after our competition and everything. But we were asleep in our rooms. And um, – uh, I won't cuss on the show, but anyway, oh, yeah, yeah, he, do whatever, yeah. he 
opened up the um, curtains because you could put your hands through the, the uh, you know, the metal bars. <laughs> and he opened up those curtains and he stood there and he said, wake the bleep up, girls. <laughs> I mean, the, as loud as he possibly could. And we thought we had just entered a, the set of Terminator. I was like, <laughs> what the hell is going on? And there stood Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um I mean, that's not a great prank, but we were always doing, uh, we were always having shaving cream fights. Um, I'm like really, really big into scaring people. Uh, so yes, you, we had to keep it light and we, we were young, you know, yeah. so you, we had to remember to have fun with it. Um, again, it was back in that sort of like innocent time when it right. wasn't about money. It was have fun, you do this because you love it. Um, and we're still kids. Let's make sure that we remember the Olympic experience, not just being nervous in the high pressure situation. So it's so important. And I watched wrestling growing up. My brother and I used to have our moments of um, body slams and takedowns. Right. And it was old school. <laughs> I mean, it was like Rowdy Rowdy Piper. And, and I don't know him. I wasn't obsessed with it. So I don't remember the names right. and, of everybody. But Yes, we used to watch it. My brother would dress up like it. We would have takedown moments and tap out moments and <laughs> tag team. So yeah, but it was old school. What was it called? Was it still called WWE back then, or was no, it, it was did have a different name? WWF probably back then. WWF. It's yeah. exactly what it was. <laughs> WWF. Which totally. Is, which is funny because the first thing they tell you to do is don't try this at home, and the first thing you do is try to jump off your sofa and do an elbow drop, Macho Man Randy Savage style on your brother. So I mean, totally. That's, yeah. <laughs> if, have you ever been bungee jumping or done anything scary like that? Uh, no, I tried to swim okay. once in Mexico and. Uh, we we yes. know how that turned out. <laughs> yes. I did bungee jumping once, and the first thing they said to me is, don't look down. And the first thing you do is look down. And it's oh. always the case. Yeah. Um. So, yeah. And that then was... I jumped. I don't know why. Yeah. <laughs> you know, here's the deal. I'm married. I'm married to that guy. My uh, my husband was in the emergency room 20 times before the age of 10. Um, he would he would build these jumps for his BMX bike, and he literally built a ramp so that he could jump his mom who just stood there and she didn't, she's like equally awesome, crazy like that. <laughs> she didn't even flinch and he cleared her, you know, he would jump out of his second story window and try to clear the fence and there'd be a mattress on the other side. He, he went 70. He's an Alpine Olympian ski racer. He'd go 70 down a sheet of ice. So, I mean, these are people like I can never understand them, but I also know it's in their DNA so I just try to manage it. It's it's pretty amazing <laughs> when you're around it. You had a part in a little movie called Jerry Maguire. <laughs> did you audition yes. for that, or did the producers already have you in mind? Well, so I played myself, so I didn't have to audition. That'd be pretty sad if I had to audition <laughs> to play myself, and I didn't make it, right? You never know. They're like, no, <laughs> you know, you just don't play Summer quite as well as this other girl does. Um so, and, and the funny thing was, is I, I was asked to do it right after I missed making the Olympic team in 1996. So it was a really awesome consolation prize. But I went to San Francisco and, and the scene was three athletes and we were all staggered within the office where Jerry Maguire worked originally. Remember that scene where he says, I'm out of here and I've got my goldfish who's with me. Right. And then Renee, Z yeah, Renee Zellweger is like, I'll go with you. Um, so that was the big office. So the first person 
as he walks into the office and says hello to him, it was a football player and I can't remember who it was. So sorry if that person's listening and I didn't remember. They're not listening. But then the next, (laughs) okay. And then the next person um, he said hello to was Rebecca Lobo. And then I was right next to his office door. So I was the last of the scene. So, so the scene took really, because I was the last of it, it took all day. So all day I was hanging out there. And then as they, they cleared the, the football player in that part, okay, football player could go. And then Rebecca was cleared and she could go. So by the time they got to me, because um, we would flow through the whole scene each time, we'd been there all day. And so uh, Tom Cruise came up to me and said, hey, do you want a line? And uh, like an actual line in the movie, so speaking part. <laughs> right. And of course I'm like, sure. But I had no idea what that meant. But because I got a line in the movie, I still get residual checks. Wow. From Jerry Maguire. I had no idea. Again, I'm like, what is this? I'm not really acting. I'm just playing me. So my line was this. So, Jerry, I hear you're getting married. And I think that was it. Maybe I said congratulations. <laughs> and then he walked into his office. But the, the, the hilarious part of the whole thing is that scene didn't even make it to the movie. So I'm on the cutting room floor, but uh-huh. I still sort of get credit as being part of Jerry Maguire. Because um, if you remember the movie, he was fired. This was the scene, the scene we shot was him getting fired in his office. But in the actual movie, he got fired in that cafe. So they changed their minds. <laughs> and uh, but I got to be a part of it, and it was pretty fun. And you know, the movie process is long, and you've got to be dedicated. And and uh, yeah, it's it's not unlike uh, you know training day after day after day, looking at a black line in the swimming pool. Right. Well, what was the sentiment on set? I mean, did you guys know you know it was going to be as big as it was going to get? I mean, I know Tom Cruise; he was a megastar back right. then. I mean, but. Did y'all really have that, you know, hey, this is probably going to be really huge? No, I had no idea. You, I wish you had known my 23-year-old self at that time. <laughs> um, no, I just thought this is so crazy and awesome that I get to be on a movie set, and it's Tom Cruise in, in what was it, 1996. Right. Uh, so, yeah. No, I had, I, I mean, I figure if it's a Tom Cruise movie and it's 1996, it's probably a pretty big movie, but equally so was Cameron Crowe, you know, I mean, he was, he is and was an amazing director. So with his name attached, I'm like, this has to be pretty cool and different. Um, and I, I was connected to the world because he plays a sport agent, you know, so I knew a thing or two about sports agents and (laughs) the original ones. right? Right. So that world has changed so much over my you know, 28 year career in this business. So that part, that part, even though I'd only been in the business at that time for, you know, like maybe four or five years, I knew enough to knew, to know this is pretty cool. I felt connected to it. As a kid, I really connected to you more and your personality when you started hosting a Nickelodeon game show called Figure It Out. Do you still get a lot of questions about that show and are you tired of answering them? I mean, I know it was such a small part of your life at the time, but it seems like as a kid, when I was watching it, and when I say kid, I was like high school still probably. I was a kid. But mm-hmm. when, uh-huh. you, when you get those questions, it was a very small part. But for somebody like me, it was a huge part. It was every day for me to watch this show. So do you still get a lot of those questions about that show? Oh, my God. Every day. And I love it. <laughs> I love it. You know, I am running into people that like are the president of production companies now 
that watched me on Figure It Out. And I'll walk in for a meeting and, you know, their job is to figure out whether or not to hire me or to, you know, the show I'm pitching, whether to take the show that I'm pitching. Um, and the moment our eyes lock, it's like they turn into their 12-year-old selves. And it's really, really cool. You're, that generation of Nickelodeon kids, they are doing some amazing things right now. And I appreciate them and love them so much because I felt like Nickelodeon at that time just really understood kids, like right. took the time to care and understand them. And again, this is, you know, kind of a, going back to our conversation about social media, it is just different being a kid now with social media. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Nickelodeon just grabbed their attention and it was messy and it was creative and it was cool and everything about it I loved. And it was, you know, four or five, six years of my life. But it was a huge four, five, six years of my life. Yeah. (laughs) What is the oddest talent that you saw a kid with on that show? I mean, we had kids that saved their toe jam and put it in a jar and it smelled. And I don't know why this goes back to that thing of where they said, don't smell it. Actually, (laughs) they did tell me to smell it. And I did. I shouldn't have listened to them Uh because they were like my older brother's. But I opened up the jar and I smelled it. It was the most disgusting thing I've ever smelled. And that was considered a collection. So, yeah, we had things like that. That's one end of the spectrum. And then we had like creative inventions where this one kid, who I think he was seven, and he invented the double-lidded peanut butter jar. And he did that because he found his mom was always getting upset because she would make his peanut butter and jelly sandwich, but it'd be the very end of the peanut butter jar and she'd get peanut butter on the sleeve of her blouse because she had to reach her hand in there so far. So he put, you know, a twist lid on the bottom also so that you could open up either end and it never, you know, you never got the peanut butter on your blouse. I was like, that seven-year-old brain's pretty amazing. Yeah, that's, and, and those people that were collecting their toe jam for a follow-up, you can follow them on Hoarders now on A&E. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, um, exactly. But, you know, speaking of kids with weird talents, there is a SiriusXM host named Sam Roberts, uh, host of the Jim and Sam Show. He also has a successful wrestling podcast that he does. He was actually on Figure It Out, and he plays the clip all the time of this little <gasps> kid that he was. Do you remember the little future SiriusXM host flipping quarters off of his ankles? Oh, my God. Are you kidding me? Yes. <laughs> this is amazing. See, like, isn't this generation just so amazing what they've gone, what they've gone on and done? Right. Can he still do that, though? Has he shown people? I mean, I know it's XM radio, so yeah. it's XM. He talks about it. it. He he talks about it. He said he was on Letterman at one time, and they wanted him to do it as like a stupid human trick. And I think he said he doesn't have the ability to do it anymore. He said the only disappointment was that the winning thing on the contest was a trip to Vermont. Yeah, Smuggler's Notch. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which just sounded so wrong. Every time I said it, I'm like, this doesn't sound like a kid's show, uh, you know, gift. I don't know what Smuggler's Notch is, but that sounds like a late night gift. I don't know. Yeah, he said, we're already in. Uh, you know, Universal Studios here in Orlando, Florida. Why not give me an extra week in Universal Studios? Why are you giving me a trip to Vermont? I don't know. Every time I saw it, I'm like, why are we giving kids a trip to Smuggler's Notch? It doesn't sound like it's a good thing. <laughs> I would have said, just stay here. Just, you know what? Put a cot right here. They would have, the, the greatest gift we could have given these kids is ju- a week of sleep in our studio because oh, it yeah. was the best. 
studio full of these amazing creative um, people that were coming up with. They were we, we were throwing like canned tuna on the contestants. They had to come up with these giant slingshots. And then we turn, remember when we turned the show, show into um, wild style, and mm-hmm. then we had a chimpanzee and an orangutan that would bring out the gifts. Yep. They were Brooks and Bailey, and they were the, I mean, so cute and so cool. I think it was, I think it was the chimpanzee. We had them dressed in tuxedos, and they were like butlers, <laughs> yep. and they were to bring out, they were to bring out the the, uh, the clue on these um, metal trays, and pour. I think it was. Brooks, who was the chimpanzee, but he had it on the metal tray, and the metal tray hit Billy the answer head. You know that big wooden Billy the answer head? Yeah. He just didn't judge his space correctly, <laughs> and and the clue fell off. Some of the clues fell off, and he was so programmed to bring it out, but then some of them fell off. So he was having a moment with himself where he didn't, he didn't know what he was supposed to do. do wait. Do I pick them up or do I keep going? <laughs> it was literally like watching a six-year-old try to figure out, like, I don't – this was not a part of what we spoke about, so I don't <laughs> know what to do. I'm having conundrum, and it was like, you know, on live television. Right. So we had to stop, and poor, you know, poor Brooks was like, I didn't know. <laughs> He's a cute chimpanzee. So, yeah, I mean, our show is just awesome. Great I, people. I, I will say Sam Roberts actually said that the one thing that did really tick him off – was that you had the charade brigade charade brigade I'll get that yep. word right in a minute and he said they are supposed to act out the clues of what this talent is and he said at one point and it, he just started pointing to his ankle and they all go ankle and he's like oh come on <laughs> I know right there were some there were some where I was like we could have made that probably a little harder yeah i mean this, there was a lot at stake for these little kids Part of it was just making it to the show and getting to see Danny Tamborelli and Laurie Beth Denberg and all the great um, people on the panel. Um, the other part of it was watching them get slimed. Yep. But, you know, they did go home with a lot of amazing, like, Toys R Us bucks. Yep. Uh, I don't know, backpacks full of stuff. I don't know what it was. <laughs> the kids seemed happy. But I did. I felt bad because Lori Beth Denberg, I, she was the buzzer beater of all buzzy, buzzer beaters. <laughs> she could figure out. I mean, she'd have like, it'd be one word on Billy the Answer Head and six more words to go. And somehow in the final seconds, she'd just throw out this guess. And she'd guess it to the point where the kids were like, you're giving her the answers. <laughs> like they were convinced that we were giving Lori Beth Denberg the answers. I'm like, Listen, we want to give these smugglers notch gifts away. <laughs> like, I don't want to go. It's minus 70 there. I know how cold it is. Um, so, yeah, it was really funny. What would you say is one of your most favorite memories of the show? Oh, I mean, I grew up watching the Jeffersons. And I remember when Sherman Hemsley stepped foot on our set. Because I think it was his, I think it was his grandkid that watched the show. We had a lot of celebrities that either had their kids come or they would be on the panel because one of their family members loved Figure It Out. So Sherman Hensley was on our panel, and I got to say "Wheezy," and that was a huge moment for me. It was that was my youth. I watched Different Strokes, The Jeffersons, One Day at a Time. Um, after school every day, and the fact that Sherman Hemsley was there was was pretty cool. I mean, we had Joe Namath. Uh, I don't know if you remember the basketball player Penny Hardaway. Yes, oh, he's yeah. from Memphis. Uh, it, it yeah, was huge there you go. When yep. Orlando drafted him, yes, 
Yeah. So we had Penny Hardaway, um, Evander Holyfield. There, there were a lot of uh, a lot of people that you would never imagine would be on the show and get slimed. You know, when slime was just becoming the slime that it is right now. So uh, I don't know. I, I think, you know, and then probably the most touching was the Make-A-Wish kids that would, um, all they wanted to do was come meet Danny Tamborelli. And for me uh, to watch, I was 23, 24, 25 at the time. And I would watch Danny, who was much younger than me. I think he was an, I think he was a teenager at the time. I, uh, he would take the time and spent the whole day with these kids that would come through because awesome. um, all they wanted to do, their make-a-wish was to go and be with Danny Tamborelli. And I just thought that was such a special part of who we were, not only as a network, but as a show. You know, I always looked up to the guys like John Cena, Michael Jordan, all those guys that would do those make-a-wish things. It's like, mm-hmm. and even as a dad now, it's even more special because something happens when you have a kid. You become this big softy and little things like that. I know they did a thing in WWE a couple years ago with, uh, they called him Connor the Crusher. He had terminal cancer. Mm-hmm. And they let him basically just get in the ring and be a superstar one day. And they actually have a cause that they support now called Connor's Cure. And this was right after my daughter was born and my wife and me were watching wrestling and she leaves the ring and uh, leaves the room and she comes back and I'm bawling like a baby. And she's like, are you crying over wrestling right now? And I'm like, no, no, it was the sweet thing. And they did the same thing with Carson Wentz. And I'm sitting here trying to, you know, there's allergies and stuff and there's dust in the room. But I don't know what it is. It's something about that make a wish thing especially after you have a kid that you see that that's so special and those guys hats off to them. If, if, if I was popular enough to have that position, I would try to do as many as I could and hats off to them. That's awesome. Yeah. And I think, I think, you know, they really, the very grounded athletes that are capable of handling that they do recognize that this helps them, you know, I mean, not, it's not in a selfish way, but you're, when your sport becomes your job, um, it becomes a little less fun, right? And if right. you can give it more meaning, um, and uh, if the meaning is coming from somebody else, uh, and it's real, real like that with a little kid that's fighting for his life, and now you're a part of that journey, um, that's inspiration to a whole nother level. So uh, I do appreciate those athletes that really do get it. And, and frankly, a lot of, a lot of them are those athletes we just don't hear the stories and we should hear more of those stories i would Mm -hmm. much rather hear that than some of the negativity you hear in the news nowadays i would love to hear those thousand percent percent, now you mentioned getting slime just a minute ago just to bring the mood up a little bit you know as a kid that was like what i wanted i wanted to be slimed more than anything but now as an adult i feel like that would be a day ruiner and I know, like, even for, like, more more so for, like, people on TV because they have makeup and hair and all that stuff that they have to do, you were you got hit with the slime a few times. Was it fun or was it more of, like, a nightmare situation, like, here we go again? Okay, so you have to understand our show. First of all, I'm going to go step back for a second. Okay. If you, if you got slimed right now in your adult life, you would be so joyous. You <laughs> would be like, this is, I'm 12 again, and uh, I have, like, a thousand watts of energy it's ridiculous now, how amped i am because of this you would love it now am and I i'll on, tell you why am i on the tv show or is it just a homeless guy hit me with a bucket of stuff 
Right. So that wouldn't be ideal because you don't you don't know what slime you're getting. Right. But when you get the authentic Nickelodeon slime and your moment happens and your kids get to see it, priceless. Okay. Now let's go to our show. Right. We would shoot approximately God, what were we shooting? Seventy some shows. Or maybe it was forty seven. Maybe I'm dyslexic. I so it was either forty seven, seventy so we would shoot four, three to four shows a day all through the weekday for probably about a month. I don't know what that adds up to. But um, so when we were, let's say, on a Friday, and we had shot all week, four shows a day, and we were on our fourth show on that Friday, there was probably only one person on the panel who was willing to take another slime, and that was Danny Tamborelli. (laughs) But there were many times, and I totally understood it, when Lori Beth Denberg was like, I am not getting slimed. I'm not taking another shower. Like, I'm not going to do it. Because the people on the panel, when they got slimed first show, that's fine. Because they just sit there for the second half, right? Uh, You know, the the second half of the show. And if they get slimed again, okay, no big deal. So, But in between, we had to clear set, clean set, clean the panel, redo hair and makeup, and then come back out. So I really had the easy job when it came to that. Right. Um, and I did get slimed four times, and I loved every time I got <laughs> slimed. But it always made me appreciate their role a little bit more because the slime was freezing cold. They kept it in refrigerators, oh. and it must have been on the verge of like a freezer because it was freezing cold, and it was vanilla pudding and green food coloring. Wow. So the plus was you could eat really cold vanilla pudding, but the <laughs> The negative was you had really cold vanilla pudding running down your back. Uh, you know, it was yeah. like there's just so. Um, but Danny always took it the best. And then he'd flick his hair back. And then, you know, the people behind him with the dog pound. And they yeah. would always get <laughs> get Danny's excess slime. And it was like a huge moment. It was great. It was great. Do you ever still talk to Danny or any of those guys like Lori or any of those guys from that day? I don't. And I wish I did. Danny and I, we, we're on Twitter together. So, uh and we did have a conversation not long ago. Um, you know, we don't. But it's sort of like this, um, you know, like the Disney Club, the Nickelodeon Club. Uh, we all sort of recognize each other. Uh, I think if I did get a hold of anybody and I asked them for something or I needed something from them, they would be there for me in a second. Um, you know, from Mike O'Malley, uh, Phil Moore. I'm just trying to think of some of the people. Um, Amanda Bynes. I'm sure we've all watched what's been going on with her mark summers uh, maybe but like yeah mark summers uh keenan thompson who's now on oh, yeah. snl yeah so we i mean we have a lot of really cool alumni from nickelodeon and and i think the, the best part about this group you guys is they really remember where they came from That's awesome. and again how important nickelodeon was to kids at that time and how rare how rare it was to be a part of a network like that you worked a long time with old school football great ahmad rashad any good I did. stories, you know, from the NBA inside stuff years that you could share about working with the mod? Oh my gosh. So I was I was an inside stuff fan, huge fan, as you know, because I was a Jordan fan before I started hosting the show. Right. I would watch it every Saturday, loved it. And I had this really very strange feeling, uh, almost like I was psychic in a way, that I was gonna host that show. Every time I'd see it, I'd go, I'm gonna host that show someday. And uh at the 92 Olympics, NBC said to me, if you win, you know, your gold medal, would you please come, as I told you, to 
Mr. Ebersol's office and do an interview with Bob Costas. And I, and me being like the savvy businesswoman that I was at 19, I said, um, yes, if I can have four tickets to the dream team final. And I'm sure they went in their stash of like a thousand tickets and said, oh, yes, okay. All right. So anyway, they gave me the four tickets. Um, so I took three of my girlfriends with me and we went to this game. Huge moment for me. Huge. Uh, even even bigger now, right? Because there's no other right. dream team. There was only that 92 dream team. There's right. just other teams. So no offense to anybody's play, but that was the dream team. There's not dream team two. So um, anyway, so we're we're there. We make it uh, to the game on time, uh, and I see Ahmad Rashad. So I say to my friends, I've just won my gold medal. I've just had my interview with Bob Costas. I just negotiated this big deal for these tickets. I'm feeling all cool and confident. And I say to my friends, I'm going to walk up and introduce myself to Ahmad Rashad. And my girlfriends were like, who is that? (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, you don't need to know. I will explain to you later. So I go up to Ahmad Rashad. And I boldly say, hello, Maud. I'm a big fan. My name is Summer Sanders. I watch you all the time on Inside Stuff. I love basketball, and it's great to meet you. So that was the first meeting with Ahmad Rashad. I don't even know if he even remembers that I ever did that, but that was 1992. Um, I started working for Inside Stuff in 1997, and uh, and then 1998, I became the co-host of Inside Stuff. I have endless stories about Ahmad. His many sports cars that he would drive up to the studios in, um, sitting there in my dressing room and having Michael Jordan, who you remember my obsession with Michael Jordan. Yes. Well, now he's like standing in my dressing room door, heckling me. Um, you what know, did he think about the poster in your, in your room? <laughs> he thinks I'm crazy because I had so many posters and I had so many things signed for awesome. me. People knew my obsession with Jordan, so they kept asking Michael Jordan, please sign this for summer. He finally was like, I have signed so much for this summer, girl. Like, I'm done. <laughs> and and so I finally met, I met Michael Jordan right after I made the 19, 1992 Olympic team because the Sacramento Kings learned of my obsession with him. And I came back to Sacramento for Thanksgiving break from Stanford and they, and I was at the game. And so they took me down before the game to meet Jordan. And it was literally like, if you, have you seen the movie? Tell me you've seen the movie Dirty Dancing. Yes. Oh, I was raised by women. Uh, Dirty Dancing and Pretty Woman. My wife makes fun of me. Yes. I know those movies. Well, (laughs) go ahead. That that was my moment of, I carried a watermelon. Like, I don't even really know what I said to him. (laughs) Whatever I said, it was really stupid. And I'm like, I blew my whole moment. That was my moment <laughs> with my Jordan, right? And and then, you know, essentially we, we became, quote, unquote, teammates in 1992. Right. And then eventually I worked with the league. And uh, and then he's standing in my dressing room door while I'm waiting to go tape the show, heckling me and making fun of my computer skills. So, you know, it's funny how life works, yeah, right? That, that but, could have um, been your nobody puts Summer in the corner moment when he's in there heckling you. It all works out for the best. Exactly. <laughs> nobody puts Summer in the corner. Doesn't sound as good as nobody put ba- puts Baby in the corner. But a lot less drama than o- the movie. Was it odd then that I just ran and jumped up and he caught me and held me above his head? I mean, is that wrong? Did is your that mom ha- say that? Like, did, your, did your mom say, I think that she's getting this from me? Yes. It yeah. was the whole scene. I mean, <laughs> that's weird. I don't know. I, but it, just a, in that moment, in thinking of Dirty Dancing, Tell me your favorite moment besides the play, but your favorite moment from the Super Bowl, this last Super Bowl. Actually, that was going to be my next question. Um, 
that that play was my favorite moment. Other than seeing now, people look at me and they're going to say, all right, he's a Tom Brady hater. Watching him miss uh, that pass, I was like, okay, he's uh, not perfect. He's not perfect. Yes. He dropped the ball. <laughs> yes. Are you kidding? That was fantastic. I was talking about the commercial oh. with the Giants. Oh, yes. That was probably my favorite commercial, Super Bowl commercial of all time. And just I because, think it was like it was phenomenal. Yeah. Just because I was, like I said, I, I just rattled off two or three lines, so you know I'm not lying. I know that yes. movie almost quote by quote. I could quote it to you. I could, because I was watched it ad nauseum at our house growing up because yeah. it was only one TV. We were a broke family, single parent, and my yeah. grandmother and my cousin lived with me at the time. And we watched Dirty Dancing and Pretty Woman and Fried Green Tomatoes and Stilled Magnolias. And I, that might be why I cry at the National Anthem every time. <laughs> You're a good man. You're a good man right there. I paid. I paid to go see Dirty Dancing in the movie theater 16 times. Wow. I'm, I may have a problem. I don't know. It was it was Patrick Swayze and, and Michael Jordan. I don't know what's going on. We but know anyway. where the $1,200 Olympic check went then. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All my allowance right there. I didn't even have enough money for popcorn. I just wanted to see Patrick Swayze on the big screen again. Yes. Yeah. I, I thought you were going to uh, ask yeah. me what my favorite part of the movie was. I was going to say, oh, without question, when they're practicing in the in the lake and they keep trying yeah. to do the move and falling in, that was – should I know this? <laughs> you should. It's a good quality. <laughs> keep it up. Don't let any guy tell you differently, okay? Trust me on yes. this. <laughs> well, I've been trying for years, but it hasn't worked. It hasn't worked. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know where your heart lies in the NFL. You are a Bills fan. Yes. Yeah. So, okay, so I think you're going to know where I'm going with this. I'm from close to Memphis and Nashville. I'm a Titans fan. I have a little bit of a bias towards the Titans. Hopefully we'll do pretty well next year uh, without DeMarco Murray. But here's the question. 1999, the last time you guys were in the playoffs, the Music Mm -hmm. City Miracle, was it a forward pass? Oh, my gosh. I think they've proven that. I mean, I saw it. It, No way. Like, there's no question. There is no question. Go go look at it right now. I mean, like, you know what they did right at the end of the season? I forget what what game it was. A Cowboys fan will remember the game. But the catch or no catch. I mean, it's it's so frustrating when you're a huge fan and you see when the rules, it was right, clearly right there. If they'd taken a second and looked at it and analyzed it, history would be changed forever. Um, I mean, y'all could have lost another one. Who knows, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Well, here's the deal. But we did make the playoffs last year, so our playoff drought is now done. Um, And and this draft is going to be – I mean, I'm going to – like, literally, it's going to be like the Super Bowl for us. We're going to sit here and watch the draft. We have – I think my husband was just saying this. What do we have, five picks out of the first 65 players? I don't don't even know if that's accurate, but – it's something like that. And yet we might even not do that. We might trade some of that to get a Nick Foles and then get even more draft picks. Right. It's like teams. Oh, I could go on and talk about the NFL forever, but this, like this, somebody needs to go and shake up the system. Uh, draft combine all of this and way we, the way we see NFL players right. and what is most important to your team. Like a coach needs to have the guts to go in there and just shake it up a little bit and see it differently. Clearly no one has a crystal ball. We don't know who the next Tom Brady is going to be. But there has to be some sort of better system to figure out uh, these, these franchise long-term they have it 
uh, players. I don't know. I welcome, I welcome just a new, a new train of thought when it comes to that. Yeah, I think what happens with Buffalo is it, it's the heartache, right? It's right. the how close. And really, that's why we never, ever stop watching a game until the last second. Because that's what a Bills fan does. You never know what's going to happen. You never count right. them out, and you never count out the other team. So we are fans till the end. Um, we don't, like, rarely do we start booing or bad-mouthing our team at all. Uh, it's always either, okay, next week, or if the case may be, next season. What are we going to do next season? How are we going to be better? I just, I love these fans. It's, right. it's you know, half of the reason why I love cheering for the Bills is not just the players. It's these fans. They are hardcore, true blue, um, emotional, like just invested in it, knowledgeable fans about Buffalo. And I love being a part of that group. Oh, yeah. You type in Buffalo Bills fans on YouTube and see what kind of videos pops up. Those yeah. guys right. are hardcore. <laughs> hardcore in many yes. ways, many ways. <laughs> but they love their team, the women, the men, the kids. I mean, that that city, my husband's from Hamburg, New York. He's in the Buffalo, the, I think it's called the Greater Buffalo Sports Hall of Fame. And uh, it was one of our greatest moments as a family. Like the entire Schlopey family went out there for it. Right. It was a huge moment. And those Buffalo people are good people. Yes. Well, do you have anything coming up you'd like to promote? We've got, oh God, I think it's our fifth season of We Need to Talk. It's an all-female sports talk show on CBS Sportsnet. And our fifth season will be debuting in April. So check us out. Uh it's either 7 or 8 p.m. on Tuesday nights. You just have to check your listings. But if you're watching March Madness right now, then you're watching CBS Sportsnet, so you know where to find us. Awesome. Um, and check us out. We've got 12 women that rotate four every week, ranging from Andrea Kramer and Tracy Wolfson to Swin Cash, Lisa Leslie, Summer Sanders, Dara Torres. Uh, so all walks of life in the sports world. Uh, just talking about why we love sports and our take on the latest news. I'll tell you this. It has been awesome to talk to you today. You couldn't be any more nice if you tried. We appreciate your time. Summer Sanders, go check her out there. Watch that show. She's excellent in everything she does. And I'm sure we'll be talking on Twitter back and forth when the football season starts again. Yes, we will. And my pleasure talking with you guys. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it, Summer. I don't fit. I'm going to have to buy new clothes. Don't drive to the mall. Take a trip down to 51 South Creek Drive in Jackson. See Matt Hoover and the gang at Maximum Health and Fitness. They will not only whip you back into shape, they will keep you in the clothes that you already own. Well, what are my options? Do I have a way to just kind of dip my toe in? Mention this podcast and you will receive a free trial membership. Well, that's it. Enough is enough. I'm heading there right now. Maximum Health and Fitness. 51 South Creek Drive in Jackson. He speaks fluent Klingon, backwards. The best story he's ever told was to himself. Of the two women he slept with in his life, one fell asleep, the other thought he was someone else. Dogs take him for walks. He is the world's most semi-interesting man. I don't often smoke. But when I do, I only choose Vista Vapors. Visit them today at tinyurl.com slash p3vista. Keep it flavorful, my friends. 
Well, the sound of the song means that we have reached the end of another episode of P3 Radio. Once again, we'd like to thank Summer Sanders for being a part of today's show. It was truly an honor to speak with her. If you'd like to learn more about our show, you want to visit us on, say, Facebook. Josh, where do they find us? Go to the search bar and type in Pop Poncho. On Twitter? P3 Radio, the number one. And we're also available on SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever fine podcasts are found. Join us next week for another round of P3 Radio. For Josh Briley, I'm Richard Mulligan saying thanks and good night.